Hello everyone and welcome to the season finale of season six of the Great Women Artists podcast. This entire series has been sponsored by the amazing Alighieri Jewellery who create imperfect and fragmented modern heirlooms inspired by Dante Alighieri's journey from the darkness of Inferno to the light of Paradiso. Discover their treasure trove of talismans imbued with story and meaning perfect to send as a gift or to dress up your winter evenings. Look to the stars with their signature molten Zodiac collection, ground yourself with painterly textured chunky chokers, or give the gift of strength and courage with the iconic Leone medallion. Each piece is sculpted by female founder Rosh Matani and cast three doors away from their London studio in recycled gold and silver. There's still time to get your orders in for the holidays. If you are in the US or around the world, please order by the 17th of December. Europe, the 21st, and for the UK, the 23rd to guarantee delivery. Keep an eye out for their exclusive gift sets curated by their styling team to help gifting that little bit easier. And don't forget, all Great Women Artists listeners will receive a 10% discount on all magical Alighieri jewellery with the code TGWA at checkout online or by visiting the London showroom. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that for this very special episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast and season finale of season six, my guest is the brilliant writer Deborah Levy. The author of seven novels, including Beautiful Mutants, Swallowing Geography, The Unloved Hot Milk and The Man Who Saw Everything, Levy is one of the leading writers of our time, having been shortlisted twice, each for the Goldsmith Prize and the Man Booker Prize. Her short story collection, Black Vodka, was nominated for the International Frank O'Connor Short Story Award and was broadcast on BBC Radio 4. She has also written for the Royal Shakespeare Company and her pioneering theatre writing is collected in Levy Plays One. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and she has also taught writing at the Royal College of Art for 10 years. But the reason why we are speaking with Deborah Levy today is because over the past few years, she has brought out one of the greatest and most emotionally daring trilogy of memoirs, which she sees as a living autobiography on writing, gender politics and philosophy. Things I Don't Want to Know, The Cost of Living and Real Estate, which throughout reference female artists such as Louise Bourgeois or Francesca Woodman. So I thought what better way to celebrate this special episode by looking into the lives and works of four women artists from her brilliantly unique perspective. So I'm delighted to say that today we will discuss photographers Francesca Woodman and Surrealist Lee Miller and painters Paula Rago and surrealist Leonora Carrington. Deborah Levy, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? 
Hi, and thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's such an honour to have you on. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. As you can probably tell, I've been such a fan of your work for a number of years. Having devoured Things I Don't Want to Know, The Cost of Living and Real Estate, your three-part living autobiography, which you pepper with references to female artists, I was so intrigued to have you on. I love how you unexpectedly make these short segues to artists as though their work becomes a character, an emotion, or reminds you of elements in your daily life. It is such a beautiful and relatable way about talking about art and just as an art lover incredibly captivating to see artists work interwoven like that you have of course written extensively on Francesca Woodman and Paula Rego as well but before we get into that I just love to start by asking you what attracts you to writing about the lives of artists I don't set about to somehow they just kind of dance in to my writing I look at a lot of art and I've taught writing in art schools and I, I guess the image is everything for me. I can't start writing without some kind of image in my mind. So it, this can be really very mundane. I'm thinking about writing my novel Swimming Home, which is set around a, a swimming pool in the French Riviera. So then I think, well, actually, what is a swimming pool? Physically, it's a hole in the ground, covered in water. So it's kind of like a watery grave. And then I begin to sort of know how I'm going to steer the book. And likewise, when I was writing my novel Hot Milk, which is a, a kind of mother and daughter contemporary pilgrimage to the south of Spain to cure the mother's lame legs, I had to kind of design. I always use this word design. Um, they're not very literary words, you know, like design a narrative. But that just all makes it feel much more possible for me when I write. Um, I had to design a clinic. And I wanted this clinic to be in the desert in the shape of a breast. So there I am. I'm with teacups, turning them upside down in my writing shed, trying to figure what it's made of. It's made from milky veined marble, all this kind of stuff. So literally, that is how I begin to write. And the artists you mention have been part of my life for so long. They, they just feel like my art family, really. I guess that the biggest influence in my art life were the surrealists. You know, when I first encountered them, in my late teens, I'm sure that had I been around at that time, I would have wanted to join that movement. And it would have really ruined my writing because I would have kind of done about maybe 40% of what I can do. And I would have been so desperate to please André Breton. But it is the surrealists who just opened up a whole imaginative world and actually narrative techniques for me. It's so interesting when you were saying about the teacup as well, or the sort of breast, because I am immediately also thinking about like Alina Shapovnikov or something and Leonor Feeney and all these artists. I mean, for me, when I read books, I see art, which is why I love the fact that yours is peppered with that as well. Because for me, it kind of, it comes alive that way and it helps me make sense. I mean, when you say swimming pool, I immediately think of David Hockney or Elm Green and Dragset. And actually, I love how artists interpret things similar with writers. But I'm fascinated by this idea that you discovered the Surrealists when you were a teenager. I mean, what was your sort of immediate reaction to them? And how have the Surrealists sort of carried you through your life? Well, 
I mean, you know, that very first blast, when I see it, say a teenager, it has to be a bit older than that, it has to be, you know, 19, maybe 18, 19, Merit Oppenheim, her fur teacup. I just wanted it. I mean, I, I, I basically <laughs> wanted it. And then I would read up on her and I discovered you know, that when she arrived in Paris, she made a little copy of Giacometti's ear from marzipan and walked around the rooftops in Paris holding it. And I thought, well, why not? Leonora Carrington, I guess the painting that I saw at 19 was in of the Dawn Horse, her self-portrait, you know, this young woman with wild hair sitting on a chair with a white rocking horse behind her on the wall. And out of the window is a real white horse running through this very landscape garden. And she is in conversation with a many-uddered hyena, I guess, that what I got was that it was kind of like a, a manifest, a bid for freedom. I kind of got that as a young woman in that Carrington painting. It's not like it's the best painting in the world, but it spoke to me. And I wanted to know what kind of conversation she was having with that hyena. And indeed, she does write, doesn't she, in her short story, The Debutante, about a hyena who replaces the young woman who's supposed to be going to a party her mother has organized. She goes to the zoo. She frees a hyena in Carrington's story. The hyena comes home with her in a taxi. And the female protagonist dresses it. And they then realize that, yes, They could get away with it, but what about the face? So the hyena suggests that the maid is brought up and it will eat the maid and keep the face and put the face on. So this poor maid is brought up, is eaten apart from her feet and wears the face of the maid and replaces this upper middle class young woman. So so what goes wrong The hyena smells quite strong, and the hyena at the party says to the mother, oh, I don't eat cake, I'm going to eat my face, and eats the maid's face. So that was Leonora Carrington, and she, she was just a great inspiration. She was a sort of role model because she'd left her English middle class family She had run off to Paris. Like all those women, she'd fallen in love with Max Ernst. (laughs) Yeah. Somehow they've all slept with Max Ernst. I mean, he really couldn't keep it zipped up. And he, he has these sort of cold blue eyes and this rather gentle face and silver hair. And I can see his appeal, but it does make me laugh because I don't think I know of a female surrealist who hasn't slept with Max Ernst. So he's sort of part, you know, of the archive. And my favorite Leonora Carrington story actually comes from Jodorowsky. He's the tarot reader, performer, psychoanalyst, and film director, Mexican, I think. 
he, he, he describes the story of the filmmaker Louis Bunuel meeting Leonora Carrington at a party, being very taken by her beauty and deciding that she should be his mistress, giving her the keys to the flat that he had for such occasions, didn't really even discuss it with her. And Leonora was curious and she made her way to this flat just to see what it was like. It was very bland and it looked like a kind of hotel room. She was pretty insulted by this. She was menstruating at the time, so she covered her hands with blood and she made all these bloody handprints on the bland walls of his flat. Then she left and he came back to see this. And I thought that was super cool, really. You know, what a heroine. Totally. I love how, you know, the way the surrealists, especially and artists as well, you know, they become characters, you know, especially as sort of art lovers, we kind of imagine this life they had. Their life is a sort of narrative in a way, this kind of unimaginable life story that happened, you know, running away from sort of debutante life to Paris, to Mexico, to everything. That is a sort of narrative in itself. It's encouraging, isn't it? You know, just how much it takes to become an artist. Yeah. You have to do that. What does happen if you stay at home and you do everything that you're supposed to be, if you are a female artist of that generation, nothing much was really going to happen. You know, we we can see even someone like Vanessa Bell. She didn't run away. Her parents died, but she had to make a completely different structure to paint every single day. And had she had a conventional marriage and the children that she had, um, I don't think she would have been able to do that. So with those surrealist women, it was just so encouraging and inspiring. They kind of showed me what it took to make their art. And um, I have a great affection for them. Yeah, absolutely. The Surrealists are always my favourite as well. I mean, Leonor Feeney, the life story, just the work they created is just mesmeric. And the way that they define themselves and put each other in their paintings as well, it's it's just amazing. And the the sort of photographs that Lee Miller took of all of them hanging out in the south of France or Farley's Farm, it's just magical. But I mean, before we get to the artists as well, I'd love to ask, you know, how do artists help you make sense of the world? Hmm. I don't know if they do. I mean, I look at an image and I feel something or I want something or I want to know more or feel freed in some way. That's quite important. Louise Bourgeois, oh, I mean, incredible. I'm always amazed that such a tiny woman physically made such huge sculptures. And I often think of her spider you know, the enormous spider Maman and um, the narrative that she spins around that. I begin to understand it more, actually, as I get older. So I'm not really looking for it to change my life, but I suppose I'm saying that they do. Yeah. 
that's the power of art. But I mean, let's go to Francesca Woodman. So Francesca Woodman is an artist you discuss in the second book, The Cost of Living. And you introduce her by referencing a conversation that you had with a student about how Woodman blurs the female form and how she was always trying to make her disappear into walls behind the wallpaper and into the floors, become vapor, a specter. I know Woodman's work very well, but I thought the way that you spoke about her work so poetically and so emotionally, suddenly I saw this side of her work that I actually had really not think about and how, you know, this blurred yet recognizable female form is almost like she's vanishing, but she also remains. It's almost like an internal feeling, an emotion, a thought. And what is it about the work of Francesca Woodman that you are attracted to? Mm. One of those old chestnuts, absence and presence. I mean, very hard to do both at the same time in the present tense of all the slow exposures she's experimenting with. So, you know, Francesca Woodman would be my age now. We're more or less the same generation. And when I first saw her work, maybe I was in my late 20s. So we know that she sadly died and she took her life. And that was very much in my mind when I was seeing her work because I didn't want to necessarily kind of project absence and presence so literally onto those images. And what I got was actually exuberance. It was the exuberance of talent, of youth, of trying things out. I really feel the blast of her being an art student or perhaps, which she was at the time, I think, or perhaps just afterwards, of making herself the subject, but there were other subjects that she that she was exploring too. So representation in a way, how do you be object and subject? How do you become a subject in art? And here's another thing. It is so very hard, I believe, for women to make themselves present because there's so much to absent ourselves from. So especially for Francesca Woodman's generation, So the societal gaze, so you could say the patriarchal gaze, whatever, is so violent. It's on you all the time. So why would you just be totally present (laughs) to it? You want to sort of zone out of it. So this is how I talk about absence and presence. It's not an easy thing. It's not a mindfulness thing to make yourself present in art for that generation is a huge triumph really Francesca I love you and I have to say that the fun of it as well you know finding a studio looking at the corners figuring out the lights figuring where to place the camera having a whole load of costumes so she would go to thrift shops and and buy a whole load of stuff I love her boots in the Providence Road Island series. I had boots just like that. I totally identify with her, basically. I did as a young woman, and I do now. So to kind of blur your presence and to be present, to find techniques to do that, very interesting, to always be attempting to make herself disappear is very interesting because it means that I am trying to find her. So in fact, she's become someone I want to to find. 
And then the objects that she plays around with, the cabinets of stuffed animals, I particularly uh, gaze upon and have done for decades. Uh, I think it's another Providence, Rhode Island, 1976 photograph of uh, a door that has sort of fallen onto her or the protagonist's naked body. She's lying in a kind of crouch. This door has fallen vertically across her. So why is that? It's just the light, the scale, some sort of catastrophe, some sort of playfulness with physical shapes, with power and with vulnerability. That really spoke to me when I was young because I had a performance training. I trained at Dartington College of Arts, theatre and performance. And so it was very clear to me that art was so spectacular and triumphant. I mean, just the way that she can create a visual language, a sort of internality as well. You know, I look at one of these photographs and I feel it, this idea of absence and presence. And also, I often think about how she made these works so young. And in a way, they were all university assignments. Yet, of course, she took them to a sort of total next level. And her acuteness and matureness was just staggering. I mean, how through her female figures and their hiding from the camera's gaze, how do they make you feel about being a person and being a body and a woman? Yeah, I think those were the questions that she was asking herself, either consciously or unconsciously. And as you say, you know, perhaps they were assignments, but she totally knew what she was doing. Because although I say it, it's, you know, I get this feeling of experiment, it's like you're young and you begin to write, you begin to fill up a page, and uh, you're just going to see where it leads you. You don't necessarily understand it. Thank God. What what, what <laughs> the point of, of continuing if you knew everything about it? As a young writer, first, you know, in my 20s, looking at Francesca Woodman, I thought that we were on the same page with absence and presence, with questions of representation. And another question, you know, how do I become a subject? It's hard enough to become a writer. So how do you unknot all that objectification? And what kind of aesthetic are you going to use? You know, is it going to be realism or do you want to do something else? Do you want to create a more uncanny language? I always like that comment from David Bowie. He said when he got stuck writing a lyric, he'd write a line that was totally illogical, that made no sense at all. I thought that was really interesting. And there's, <laughs> I know this is a bit of a segue, but there's something of that in Woodman as well. You know, you're not really looking for logic, but you're looking for feeling and inquiry and technique. Here's the thing. She was so incredibly skilled and I'm also looking at Sarah Lucas because she has self-portraits or let's just go two fried eggs and a doner kebab same thing really very different language obviously a more sculptural language but very inspiring for me you know as a young woman to see Sarah Lucas not so much walk uh, through the door of art history as take it off its hinges. So you asked me, you know, 
why do I look at art and, and do I think it changes the world? And I said, no, I don't think it does at all. But as we speak, I realize it might be the most important, most, like the most important influence in my life. Obviously, Woodman, do you agree? Must have She must have seen the photos of Claude Cahoon. Definitely. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, she obviously was in Rome and she was part of that whole sort of, you know, neo-surrealist circle. She went to that surrealist bookshop. It's where she exhibited. But the thing about Claude Cahun is the fact that no one actually knew who they were until quite recently, because actually Claude Cahun didn't ever exhibit these photographs in their life. True. But there, there is this amazing connection with them, though. The mirrors, the double self. Exactly. So I was just wondering about that and, and had she seen them. And then what about Man Ray? She must have seen those. I'm sure. I'm sure. And then later, obviously, Cindy Sherman and Nan Golden and, you know, but Francesca Woodman is always, unfortunately, sort of frozen at the age of 22 There's an epic spectrum of age in Sherman's work and there's not in Francesca Woodman's. And so it's it's almost like when I look at any one of her images, it's a bit like my youth. It's a bit like my 20s, you know, because that was exactly how I felt too. She kind of holds on to memory and that memory is forever frozen in time. But I'm interested... I mean, also you write novels, obviously, and does Francesca Woodman inspire you when creating female characters or do you find that characters are carrying her soul or do you feel like as a writer you carry her soul? I don't know if I carry her soul. I think we had the same problems and we were artists, so she's looking at representation. She's looking at how do I represent the female body, right? So I might say, well, how do you write a female character? That interests me, okay? It's not a general thing. So she's got to have some some sort of interior life. What is she there to do? I often ask myself this in, in sort of many films. I think, what are the women in this film here to do apart from service everyone else's desires and be sexy and be desired too? You know nothing about them. And apparently just being desired is to know a lot about them. So I believe at a very young age, uh, fleetingly, Woodman is asking some of those questions and I'm asking some of those questions. So is Leonora Carrington, so is Paula Rago, and so is Sarah Lucas. So if we return to a female character, her subjectivity, she has desire and Already you can smell the smoke when you're writing. Already it gets complicated. And then we have this this question of, of presence and absence, which I'm so interested in how hard it is to be present, actually. And what's the point of it? It's supposed to be very good for us. <laughs> we, we, all, we all know we quite like to zone out. So this idea, you know, the, the sort of, it's almost like a bullying thing in a way because, you know, be vigilant, be alert, be present. Well, yes, that's quite hard. But how do I make a, a female character present? And why is it desirable? And what's she present to? And, and, and why? And what's the purpose of it? And let her zone out. 
Let it be powerful. Let it be fragile. Let it be clever. Let it be really stupid on Tuesday. Let it be everything. These are very obvious things, you know, but they often kind of missed out. You either have to be incredibly powerful and empowering or fragile and vulnerable, but none of us are really like that. We're all of those things, as we all know. So Woodman is all of those things with a rollicking sense of humor, actually. Rollicking isn't the word, sort of, she has quite a droll sense of humor in the way that she puts those images together. And and so does Carrington later on. What about those paintings where there are all those old women in headdresses on ladders scrubbing down anteaters? I mean, <laughs> so she's gone kind of mystical liberation that I don't quite understand, but I sort of love. And I love the way that they all liked cats. Yes. Well, Leonor Feeney especially, I think she had about 17 cats. <laughs> <laughs> But I now want to turn to Lee Miller, the great model turned surrealist, turned commercial photographer, turned war photographer, turned cook, and one of the greatest artists ever to live, again with one of the most interesting lives I know. What draws you to Miller's photographs? I want to know more. It's almost what they don't do, what they don't tell me, that is attractive to me. They reveal very little. They have an ambience that's attractive to me. They have a sort of enigma that draws me in. I've always been very touched by Lee Miller. I sort of want her to be my best friend. (laughs) Yes. I think I I would have loved a best friend like Lee Miller. She would have Um, been terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not so sure, actually. I think she would be great to have a glass of wine with or go to the beach with. Oh. So so to be born with such beauty, such spectacular beauty of a particular kind, we know a bit about her biography. And then, again, she she comes to Paris. All these women, they, they seem to have fled to Paris. It's the magnet for great women. Yeah. And we know she works with Man Ray and he's making some mistakes and they become his signature technique and she's picking up techniques. And then later she becomes a kind of war correspondent, doesn't she, for Vogue. And she is embedded in the American army and she is one of the few first photographers to take pictures of the death camps, the Nazi death camps. That's a very interesting career, you know. I think her beauty was a curse and a blessing, actually. And she was just, she was tough and steely. So it's basically, it's the enigma and the ambient and the vibe in her photographs. I love the photograph she took of the other surrealist women too. She's really on side with her sisters and the girlfriends of all those, uh, I think it's Noosh and Edie, and you really feel she's on side with her sisters. Not that she would ever put it like that, I I know. No, I think it's fascinating the way that you know, they they clearly have this huge sisterhood and we're all, you know, vouching for each other, but also this idea that they both caught in visual form. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, Leonora Carrington's painting of Max Ernst, where you have yes. the, the, the white horse stuck in the, the green jar and, you, you know, you're frozen. And then you think about Lee Miller's portrait of Tanya Ram in a bell jar and this woman kind of 
frozen. Her silence is is totally, you know, she's not allowed to speak. Mm. She's she's trying to let loose, yet society is sort of pressurizing her. But I mean, I'm fascinated with Miller. Does she also influence you when building characters for your fiction as well? I'm thinking about the character of Ingrid in Hot Milk. Maybe I had Lee Miller in mind there. I don't really have very much to say about Lee Miller, except that she makes me want to know more and to see more. There's so much left out somehow. But I'm not really after narrative in visual art. What am I after with Lee Miller? It's a sort of longing and pain and mystery and... I really like that. And those are qualities that I want in my work too. I hate work that explains everything, that ties up every single meaning and every single plot line. I like to write in a way that encourages the reader to kind of, like it makes an imaginative space for the reader to step in. I want to work with the conscious and the unconscious well who doesn't but what does that actually mean it means that I suppose we become boring when we become very certain and we can't access the things that make us interesting which are our doubts and our superstitions and our anxieties and our longings so if you can't if you can't access those, and I believe that Miller could because they're there somehow in those images, then the work becomes dull to me. And so in that sense, yeah, she she was an influence. Mm. But moving into Rago, I mean, again, this idea of characters, because I mean, the, the painter Paula Rago, she puts women in their stories, the center of their work. But again, she leaves so much out and actually you almost become the protagonist, I feel, when I'm confronted with her work. She makes you realize so much, but also think about the world at large. I mean, it's so she kind of yeah, the world comes alive in these paintings. And she does that with single characters. I mean, just the kind of weightiness of their bodies and their emotion and also with her pictures that encompasses college. I mean, they are never fixed as well. And I think that's there's so much movement in her work as well. What's your experience of being confronted with a work by Paula Rago? <laughs> I think she's both sinister and heartbreaking. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yes, it took me a long while to deeply admire Rego. I do think, you know, she's jolted the way women are represented in visual art consistently, right from the off. As you say, these are bodies we have necessarily seen enough of. They're visceral, they're alive, they're quite muscular, they're thoughtful. They are sometimes abject, as in the Dog Woman series, but in a really good way because Rago is a fan of the bestial. She thinks, yes, that's exactly what we should be. We should be more like that, snarling and furious. So I guess that my favorite Rago is really the policeman's daughter. I mean, I was trying to find one that's less well-known, but I have to come back to that because that's the one that's always haunted me. This young woman with her arm rammed into her father's boot and 
there she is having to polish the boot of the patriarchy, right? We could put it like that. But it's also quite erotic. And her resentment, that's how I read it. She's resentful. Her own body is very different from the boot that she's polishing. Okay, so so the boot is stiff and rigid and authoritarian. And it seems to me that Rego does something sort of very touching with the policeman's daughter's body. And then we see, you know, it's soft and wanting and slightly eroticized. And Rego has always said that drawing in itself is an erotic activity and that she becomes what she's drawing. And I understand that. I understand that as a writer. There is a sort of strange shamanistic exchange that goes on, you know, where you you sort of become what you're writing. How can you not? I mean, why wouldn't you? And then there's that cat, the cats again. The cats again. (laughs) There must be something happening, some kind of thread. (laughs) Yeah, so the cat's doing quite a lot of the talking for the policeman's daughter because it's it's pauses up, it's stretching against the window, it's looking out, it wants to escape. And so the cat is doing quite a lot of talking for Rego then for this poor daughter. She wants to jump out of that window and get the hell out as well. That's so interesting to me that she can do so many things, Rego. Her technique is formidable. But most of all, the way that she pours an interior life and a political life into these images are amazing to me. I also love the Dancing Ostriches. That series makes me laugh a lot. I think it's, uh, again, the sort of satin pink ballet shoes and an ensemble of muscular women who are never going to to move in the way that ballerinas are supposed to move. There's never going to be that split between body and mind that ballet has to have, right? It's just impossible for any of Rego's protagonists. And so it has a kind of pathos. They're very funny and true too. I often think of... Paula Rego arriving at the Slade. I mean, I know that she had been educated in England for a while too, but she arrives in the 50s at the Slade with so much already laid down inside her from where she was born. Another palette, another language, the folk stories, the poetry, and the dictatorship, you know, the fascist dictatorship. All this is inside her. And there she is at the Slade under England's grey sky. What's she going to do with all of this stuff? And every single image is inflected with it over and over again. And finally, Rego never pathologizes and shames her girls and women. So I'm thinking of some of the lesser-known pastel drawings, the Depression series, for example. Her model is Lila Nunes. Nunes is her longtime collaborator. 
And this really is a note for art history because I don't know of anyone else who's used a model in the same way as Rego, where she has a kind of alter ego. <laughs> and I, I'm not sure muse is the right word, but maybe that there's something of that. It's just a completely transparent relationship. And Nunes does so much. Nunes is part of the process in a way that really interests me. Those women in the Depressed series, they're wearing black Gothic dresses. They are lying on sometimes a blazing yellow uh, settee. They are sighing, thinking, crouching, often just flattened. They could be the Bronte sisters. They could be our mothers. They could be ourselves. They could be Elizabeth Browning. They have such dignity. So Rego has really embodied, in my view, the full spectrum of female experience. It's as if she said, yes, there is desire and there's conquest and there's magic and there is love and there's fame and there's this too there's melancholia and mourning and this way that she just sort of refuses any kind of sentimentality is so important there's none of it in her work at all so I, I really th have come to believe that she's one of the most unique figurative artists in the world. Yeah, and it's the way that she also captures this sort of sense of flux and how people are never women, they're never girls, they're never the sort of joy and misery, the childhood and adulthood, the sort of power and vulnerability. There's always that kind of in-between and they're, never, they're always kind of just verging and you never know what's going to happen next as well. Reminding me of Francesca Woodman in a way that you know, she captures a memory, she captures an emotion, she captures a feeling, and she translates that for us to sort of see the truth in ourselves as well. Yes, if you think about the kind of costumes that lots of Rego's protagonists, who, as you say, are always morphing into, into something else, and the furniture is as animated as any of her protagonists as well. But there is that same performative quality, isn't there? As, as there is in, is in, a, in a woodman, of sort of put on this, lift up your arms and see what happens. Different time frames, multiple time zones, actually, in any one image. Um, nothing is ever resolved. She's a consummate storyteller. She never wraps a story, ever. And is just uniquely droll as well. She's got a great sense of humour, which is very different from comedy. I completely agree. And then to finally bring in Leonora Carrington, I want to end by asking about her because in a way she does the opposite of Rago. For me, Rago's work seems very grounded in the world. These animalistic, weighty, stocky women. Whereas Carrington, capturing equally emotional figures and scenes, does it in a dreamscape. We aren't sure if they are interior or exterior, celestial or terrestrial. They feel very dreamlike. Yes. So it's not one or the other. But as you say, very different. I mean, so Carrington's aesthetic is reveal nothing. Mm. And that's good too. 
I mean, really. So, so there's a there's a sort of ethereal poise, if you like, that Carrington has, a sort of helicopter view, an aerial view, often, and the composition is dreamlike, which is very attractive to me. But if they're about something, here's the thing, they're not about nothing, just just creating a, a dreamscape, whatever it is, they deeply felt. You, you really feel that that white horse galloping outside the window is deeply felt. That's what she wants. She wants to be that horse. They have a sort of elegance and poise you know her aesthetic is completely different and I find that in my own work maybe it's a mix of those aesthetics of sort of Carrington's poise and Rago's confrontation Mm. And do you think of her as a person as well when you look at these works? Obviously, she ran away from her aristocratic family at Crookey Hall, which is almost like this sort of gothic surrealist estate as a debutante. She ran to London, eventually joined the surrealists and later went to Mexico. I mean, do you think of her as a woman when you look at these paintings or do you see it as an image? Both. Because by this time, we know so much about her life and her life is incredibly inspiring. I mean, what do you have to do to become a female artist, and especially of, of, of her generation? You had to bolt. And so she had to make a life in which she could make art every day. There was no other sort of life that she could construct in which she could do that. So that's the important information for me. And then the images themselves have a freedom that I really love and need and her imaginative reach, which I think also comes from her mystical and spiritual beliefs or preoccupations. Not that I understand those, but I'm intrigued by them. I understand that they have a purpose and the purpose is probably exactly the same as that white horse galloping away in that earliest picture. In some ways, you know, I I feel it's, it's the same story. But what do you think unites these artists who we've discussed today, if anything? What unites these artists is immense blazing talent, skill and a sense of purpose. There's no point in having technique unless you know what you want to do with it. And so that's what unites them. Deborah Levy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. As is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could meet one of these artists, or perhaps all of them, or two or three, who would it be and what would you say to them? Mm. <laughs> a party with Lee Miller, maybe. <laughs> a party with Lee Miller, perhaps. I think it would be Leonora Carrington. And what would I say? Okay, I'd say uh, one sugar lump or two. <laughs> Fantastic. Deborah Levy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the 78th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast and the season finale of season six with the very brilliant Deborah Levy. 
It was unbelievably fascinating to look at these fantastic artists from Deborah's point of view. And I urge you all to read her memoir trilogy and novels, which for me are some of the most emotionally brilliant writing I've ever witnessed. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardesh Milenic. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to this episode and season six of the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel, and see you in the new year for a very exciting season seven. <laughs>